0: The Porto Boilevay family can trace their lineage back to the 17th century. In 2012, 4,514 Porto Boilevays got together, and they set the Guinness World Record for largest family reunion. Tonight, we're going to read about the growing families of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God asked them to fill the earth, to repopulate it, and to spread out over it. We'll see that they did that very thing, but they don't come together in a family reunion. They scattered far and wide. Uh, This text is referred to as the table of nations, and it's really a remarkable document. Scholars point out that this record of descendants and clans and nations is historically unparalleled in ancient writing. One non-Christian scholar writes this, the table of nations is unprecedented in the ancient Near East sketching a panorama of all known human cultures from Greece and Crete in the west, through Asia Minor and Iran, and down through Mesopotamia and the Arabian Peninsula to northwestern Africa. This chapter has been a happy hunting ground for scholars armed with the tools of archeology. span But this is more than a list. Woven through these names is a story and a telling about God accomplishing his impossible plan in the midst of the world's generations and in the midst of migrations. There are so many ways that God could do what he wants to do, but time and again, he demonstrates that his choice, his delight, is to use persons, persons like you and me, to make good on his plans and his promises and his activities here in the world. What an amazing thing. We begin in verse one. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. In these genealogies, we will see 70 names listed, 14 from Japheth, 30 from Ham, 26 from Shem. Now, they don't include every child that was born to each of these people. No daughters are listed, for example, More likely, what is given here is a representative list of the principal nations during the time of Moses. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, great commentary if you ever come across it, describes this table as an explanation of political, geographical, and ethnic affiliations at the time. This is significant when we remember that God's plan for salvation, this is the whole point, is that the world needs saving because without saving, the world only gets judging. And so the world needs saving, and God's plan for salvation was predicated upon him calling out a specific people from the nations of the world, from their culture, from their religions, from their norms, and doing a new thing with them. It's going to happen through a very specific, very limited line, the line of Shem, which is where we get the term Semitic people, by the way, from Shem. But before we get to Shem and the people we want to take a look at, we're going to see first his brother Japheth. Verse two: Japheth's sons Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Gomer's son Ashkenaz, Rephath, Togarmah. Javan's sons Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these descendants, the peoples of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans in their nations, each with its own language. Now Genesis brings up and wraps up Japheth's portion pretty quickly. And the reason is because his line has the least to do with the story, with the main characters that we're getting to. The main characters we're getting to are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. In fact, in this big Bible book, important Bible book, 76% of the book focuses on that family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. And the Japhethites, they simply won't figure into the story very much. Now, generally speaking, the sons of Japheth became what are known as the Indo-European people. Most of us flow from Japheth. They were the forerunners of the Greeks, the Persians, the Russians, and others who settled around the Black Sea. Also the Romans and those who spoke the Romance languages, uh, historians believe, perhaps even the Spaniards. A few names may have jumped out at you from that list if you're a Bible reader. Magog is one of them. Magog and his brothers, Meshach and Tubal, feature prominently in end time prophecy, specifically in Ezekiel 38 and 39, not those guys themselves, but their descendants, along with the descendants of Gomer and some of Ham's line, Cush and Put, all of these groups are going to come down, we're told, from the uttermost parts of the north to destroy God's people, Israel. And when they do, they're going to be miraculously Uh, fantastically destroyed in the sight of the whole world so that many nations will know the Lord. You 23andMe fans might also have recognized the name Ashkenaz in verse 3. Maybe you've heard the term Ashkenazi Jew or Ashkenazi Jew. How does that work if the descendants of Ashkenaz are Gentiles? There's some disagreement and dispute over where the descendants of Ashkenaz really landed, but current consensus is that the sons of Ashkenaz ended up in the Rhineland between France and Germany around the Rhine River. In the Middle Ages, you know, Jews were constantly throughout human history being driven out of their home, persecuted, attacked, dispersed. You've probably learned about the diaspora at some point in school. And so in one of those times, some of the Jews that left their homeland in the Middle Ages moved to that area where the descendants of Ashkenaz had settled in the Rhineland. And this is where Yiddish originated and was used until the 20th century. In this region, the Jewish people they, they settled there and they developed some slightly different customs and cultures. They developed a language, but they, they kept to their Jewish selves when it came to marriage and children. And so uh, geneticists can do a whole lot of study on those Jews that settled in the land that the Ashkenazi uh, descendants first settled Now, by the 11th century, it's believed that only 3% of the global Jewish population belonged to these Ashkenazi Jews. In fact, DNA research has found that all Ashkenazi Jews alive today can trace their genetic heritage back to a group of just 330 people who lived in this region six or 800 years ago. Naturally, given their location in Europe, when you get to the 20th century, there's a problem for them. They were absolutely decimated by the Holocaust. And yet today, when surveys are taken and censuses are taken and those sorts of things, 80% of the global Jewish population are Ashkenazi. More than 10 million of the Jews alive today are traced back to this region. So if you're wondering how how can a Gentile named Ashkenaz lead to Ashkenazi Jews, which get talked about from time to time, that's how. Verse six, Ham's sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan, Cush's son, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Reema, Sabteca, and Reema's son, Sheba, and Dedan. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, more of these names will pop out to you. The Old Testament centers around a certain family, the family of Israel, which then became the nation of Israel after they left Egypt in the Exodus. Now, these folks that I just read in verses six and seven were their neighbors, and by neighbors, I mean arch enemies. Mizraim is an old term for Egypt. Canaan, we recognize. From the line of Ham come nations who settled in Southern uh, Arabia, the south of the Arabian Peninsula, and also in Africa. But more importantly, from the line of Ham come the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, and the Canaanites, all the Canaanites. These are the rivals, the adversaries, the antagonists, and the seducers of Israel who drew them away from the Lord time and time again. And they are exemplified. If they had a poster child, he comes to us uh, and is shown to us their first emperor who we meet in verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. This is why it said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. I love stuff like that in the Bible. Just, just, it's great. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and the great city Kala. Now, Nimrod wasn't just a really great elk hunter, right? He couldn't just, you know, put one down with a bow and arrow from 100 yards away. The name Nimrod means we will rebel. From birth, it seems, he was seen as the man who would deliver the sons of Ham. Deliver them from what? Well, deliver them from God's rule over their lives and perhaps from the curse that God had placed on the descendants of Ham through Noah. From the beginning, these cities and kingdoms that he put together were in opposition to God. From the beginning, the kingdom of Babylon built itself in rebellion to God, in opposition to his word. That aim of Babylon continues throughout the history of Scripture as you move all the way through the Old Testament. And we see that that theme is going to continue through Babylon into our yet future, into the end times when Babylon as a system and as a religion is revived in the Great Tribulation. Now, Nimrod founded this wicked city and then went on to found other wicked cities as as if that weren't enough. Cities like Nineveh, who were uh, obviously one of the star figures of the Book of Jonah and were famous for their uh, incredible Uh, violence and wickedness and rebellion against the Lord. When it says that he was a powerful hunter, commentators point out that the term used is sometimes elsewhere used in the Old Testament for hunting men. And so he can form for us a prototype of the man we know as the coming Antichrist, a ruler with great might who establishes a kingdom in rebellious opposition to God who destroys many lives. Bruce Waltke, a Bible commentator, points out that Nimrod was a hunter, not a shepherd, as God's deliverer would be. And isn't that just like the devil? He always counterfeits, but he always does the opposite. He's always trying to give an alternative for the people of earth to follow after his man instead of going God's way. And that counterfeit is always, you can always sniff it out by the kind of person that he is and how it is the opposite of what God wants. It's the opposite of love. It's the opposite of life. It's the opposite of goodness. When we see God's deliverer, he's a shepherd, whether that deliverer is Moses, who is a shepherd in the wilderness, David, who is a shepherd of his father's flocks, Jesus, who is the good shepherd. Instead, we see a guy like Nimrod, he's a hunter. He makes it his business to kill. You see, when we don't go God's way, when we go man's way, which is Satan's way, by the way, it is the opposite of what is good and it is the opposite of what leads to life. The Proverbs put it this way, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And so when we go the opposite of God's way, what may look like greatness in human endeavors, in human relationships, in human expressions, it may have the appearance of greatness, the appearance of strength, the appearance of, you know, Uh, uh, power and the appearance of success from man's perspective. But God's perspective is the important one. God's perspective is the one that counts. And we can look back as students of history having the Bible and knowing the rest of the story. We're not contemporaries with Nimrod. We can see what did Babylon do? What did Nineveh do? And what happened? Who comes out, people use this phrase all the time and it's kind of a sad thing, but who comes out on the right side of spiritual history, God's people or the Ninevites, God's people or the Babylonians? What does Nineveh, Babylon, the human heart look like in the sight of God? And that's one of the important things that we note here, that as the earth is refilling and and men are building these empires and cities are going up, what do we see? We see a God who is observing, a God who is paying attention, a God who is watching, and is mindful of what people are doing, not just what they're doing, but mindful of what's going on in their hearts. Now, some of you may have heard something else about Nimrod. His name comes up every Christmas. Perhaps you've heard something like this, that Nimrod was another name for the first king of Babylon named Sargon I. Sargon married a woman named Semiramis. Now, Nimrod was cut down in the prime of his life, history tells us, and then the pagan myth grew around him that he was a god. And Simiramis, the legend goes, then had a virgin birth and named her son Tammuz, and Tammuz was the reincarnation, the incarnate form of the god Nimrod. And guess what? Tammuz was born on December the 25th, and religious tradition developed that Babylonians would put a yule log in the fire on December the 24th, and the next day that yule log would have turned into an evergreen tree. And then to celebrate Tammuz and Nimrod, you would put gifts between the tree for him, and that it's all Babylonian paganism. Oh, and by the way, Semiramis is the same as Ishtar, and everything you and I celebrate at Easter is also pagan. The dying of eggs is completely Babylonian. It's completely anti-God. It's completely pagan. And the modern church has been submerged under pagan superstition. Who's heard this before? I've heard really solid Bible teachers who we love and listen to say this same thing and then say, but it's okay. And we'll get to the theological reason why it's okay for you to have a Christmas tree in a minute. But here's what's more important. If you've heard that story and now you've heard it, but man, it comes up a lot. If you trawl YouTube, try to avoid it. If you spend time on Facebook at Christmas and you have other Christians that are commenting on it, this is going to come across your feed at some point. We've had people lovely people who used to come to the church and then moved out of the area. And then afterwards, they got back in touch with us because they got drawn into this whole thing and tried to save us in our church from celebrating Christmas and Easter with things like Christmas trees and Easter eggs. Here's the problem. None of that is true. None of it is true. But how is this such a common thing that so many of us have heard about and will continue to hear about? These ideas come from a book called The Two Babylons written in 1853 by a guy named Alexander Hislop. He believed that all of this paganism had infiltrated the church specifically through the Catholic Church. He was a fanatical anti-Catholic. Now, certainly we have lots of issues with the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. That's not what we're talking about today. But he wrote this 800-page book about how everything the American church is doing, even back in the 1850s, was completely paganized. And that if you followed any of these things, you not only were not a Christian, but you were gonna be damned to hell. You have a Christmas tree in your house. But his book was very successful and very popular. The problem is, the book is full of assumptions, misunderstandings, and outright fictions. He just made a bunch of stuff up. This has been demonstrated really clearly by a Christian author by the name of Ralph Woodrow. And we think, well, why should I believe Ralph Woodrow instead of Alexander Hislop? This is why, for one reason. Number one, you can go through the data. But number two, Ralph Woodrow, as a young evangelist, he agreed so heartily with the two Babylons, with Hislop's work, that he would preach on it regularly. And he believed in it so heartily that he then wrote a book based off of Alexander Hislop's book, which is you know from over a century ago. And he said, I'm gonna take this book, condense it, and update it so that more people can get this essential message out and so that they can know not to do this and to do that and those sorts of things. His book was wildly successful, translated into lots of different languages. But the problem is, he started to hear rumors and rumblings that the history in the two Babylons wasn't history at all, that a lot of it was really bad study and scholar work, that a lot of it was fabricated, that a lot of it was just picking and choosing of different myths, mashing them together, and then saying that's what the church is doing. And so he started taking a second look at not only his own book, but the work of Alexander Hislop. And Ralph Woodrow discovered that the two Babylon's wasn't historical at all. For example, we have no reason to believe that Nimrod and Sargon the are the same person. There's no reason to believe that. They're never connected in archeological findings in any ancient writings. It's made up. He just said, uh, these two people are the same. Now Sargon the was a real person. He was a real king but there's no consensus or proof that he is the same as the biblical Nimrod. Second, Semiramis was a real queen of Babylon. She wasn't married to Sargon I. They lived 1,000 years apart. And yet this book says, no, 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 they were together and they started this whole thing. But it just isn't true. In ancient myths and writings, Semiramis is never linked with Ishtar, Ashtarte, like Hislop suggests, it's fabricated. After examining Alexander Hislop's work, one source concluded this, it's not historical, it's not biblical, it's not accurate, it's not correct. So when these things come across your feed, you don't have to just believe it because well this book says so. This 2-hour long YouTube video that I'm not going to watch but my friend <laughs> says I should watch, it's it's based off of made up archaeology, not even archaeology, made up history. What was the thing? It Was it Rocky and Bullwinkle? The, the What was the, oh man, fables? The fractured. fractured Fairy Tales. They were about as right about Nimrod as, or Bugs Bunny was about as right about Nimrod as Alexander Hislop was. Now listen, does that mean that there is no instance of some practice of ours, say like dying an Easter egg or a Christmas tree? Does that mean that there's no instance of that having some sort of pagan historically pagan connection. No, it doesn't mean that. And you can find examples of in what we would identify as paganism people using trees at what we identify as Christmas time. So should we avoid those things? Should we say well because there there is at some point a pagan connection somewhere we better avoid them? That is an area of Christian liberty. Here's what the New Testament says to you and to me, followers of Christ, people in Christ, Christians who want to honor him and celebrate him and love him well. Colossians 2.16, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Romans 14, five and six, one person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. One of the big things you hear, Jesus wasn't born on December the 25th. Yeah, that's okay. No one said, none none of us are saying that he had to be born on December 25th. Thanksgiving this year isn't going to be celebrated on the actual day that Thanksgiving happened, right? We all understand that holidays can float sometimes, right? So the question is, is it wrong for me to celebrate that? Because after all, Babylonians at one point gave each other gifts. There isn't a culture where people didn't give each other gifts. Maybe the Spartans, because they were the worst <laughs> culture of all time. They're like putting their babies out to die, okay? But is it wrong to celebrate these things? The, the question is, What is the Spirit giving you liberty to do? Right, because the, the New Testament is very clear. Don't let people judge you about that. Now, if you come to the Christmas season and for one reason or another, find that check in your heart, that check in your spirit, that thing where he makes you say, "I, I don't feel like I'm in the clear to partake in some of these celebrations, then listen to the Holy Spirit and obey him. But to go out and say, because Jesus, we don't think, we don't know, nobody knows the day Jesus was born. And they say, well, we don't think he was probably born on December 25th, therefore you shouldn't celebrate him. Jesus Christ is the gift of God given to you. He's the most important thing that has ever happened in human history. Of course, he is eternal, but his coming in the incarnation, we talked about it this past Sunday in the book of John. This is the most important thing that has ever happened. And why did it happen? Because God wanted to send a gift to you we don't want to celebrate that. We partake in communion to celebrate and memorialize his death every single Wednesday, celebrating his death and proclaiming his death until he comes. What did the magi do when they showed up because they heard the king had been born? They brought gifts and they gave them. There's nothing wrong with giving gifts to people. God's a gift giver. He gives not only the human race the gift of his own only begotten son, he gives you specifically gifts. He gives our church gifts. God is generous. He loves to give gifts. Are we not supposed to mimic that back? And not only give gifts of worship to him, but to give gifts of loving affection to one another? Now, if you get trapped into the commercialization of Christmas and decide that it's all about how much you spend, how much you get, okay, then then allow the Lord to do a work in your heart. But when a Uh, A well-meaning but angry Christian comes along and says, if you give a gift, you're not a real Christian. If you have a Christmas tree, you're not a real Christian. Tammuz, Tammuz. They're just making stuff up. They've been misinformed. It's make-believe, these connections, from a guy that has been proven to have made things up. And so don't let people destroy your joy in the Lord and what he has done. To help you out just a little bit more, we're so way off track right now, but let me help you out just a little bit more. If you're teetering on the fence and say, yeah, but if there is a connection, let me tell you what else Alexander Hislop says in that same book. I'll just give you two things. Number one, if you have a round communion wafer, you're out. Pagan! Pagan to have a round communion wafer. That's why we always just break ours into weird pieces. (laughs) But we're laughing because it's silly and it's ridiculous. The shape of my cracker is gonna cancel me out of the family of faith. And here's my favorite. I sing, play guitar, things like that. Spend a lot of time in choir. Did you know that Simiramis invented soprano singing? That's also in this book. It's crazy. You mean like one half of all women who sing, who sing in soprano? It's all semiramis. All, the, all you ladies, you better be singing low in the octave after, after church tonight. We need only altos in the church. It's silly and it's weird. And the rest of his ideas are also silly and weird. All right, back to Genesis. Where are we? Who are we here? All right, <laughs> verse 13. Mizraim of the people of Lud, Anam, Lehab. Naphtah, Pathras, Casla, the Philistines came from them, and Kaftor. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, as well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites. Afterwards, the Canaanite clan scattered. The Canaanite border went from Sidon going toward Gerar as far as Gaza and going toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboiim as far as Laisha. And these are hands, sons, by their clans, according to their languages, in their lands and their nations. So these verses pace off the borders of the promised land, which would, of course, have a lot of significance later on to the children of Israel, who were the first recipients of this book, who were then sent to not only receive this very land as their own forever, but also to drive out and destroy these Canaanite nations. We've seen multiple times in this chapter a references to languages, their languages. But didn't everyone speak the same language? Well, yes, they did until chapter 11 of Genesis, and which we know as the Tower of Babel. And we'll get there next week. After the events of Genesis 11, the people of the world spread out according to their languages. And so these two chapters are not in chronological order. Chapter 11 happened, and as a result of 11, this is the spread out and where people went and, and what groups they kind of formed. Verse 21. And Shem's brother, Japheth, and Shem, excuse me, Japheth's older brother also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. Shem's sons were Elam, Asher, Arphakshad, Lud, and Aram. Aram's sons, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash, Arphaxad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg, for during his days, the earth was divided. His brother was named Jaktam. Now, some Bible translations, perhaps yours, translate Shem as the middle brother with Japheth being the older. So what gives? All the commentators and scholars say, the Hebrew's tough right here, so take your pick. Uh, My translation places Shem as the older. It's really inconsequential. The five names we really care about now are these. Shem, Arfakshad, Shelah, Eber, Eber, by the way, is where we get the word Hebrew. If you've ever wondered, why are they called Hebrews? What does that even mean? If they're Jews or Israelites, where does Hebrew come from? It comes from this guy, Eber. And then Peleg. This is the line from which comes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and ultimately, most importantly, Christ Jesus our Lord. We're told in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. It makes the most sense to interpret this as the division and scattering of people at the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. However, it's also possible that this is referring to something else significant that happened in that uh, time, like a devastating earthquake, some think, which might have led to the breaking up of continents. There's some that suggest that the continents have drifted apart, and perhaps that occurred in this verse. Or it could be referring to political division, some scholars think, Uh, Some even suggest it was referring to some large Mesopotamian canal project. Canals are infrastructure. People love to talk about infrastructure. I don't think so. It seems, the context seems to favor the division of people by languages since that's been referenced multiple times in these verses. Verse 26, and Joktan fathered Almadad, Shileph, Hazarmaveth, Jira, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla. "'Obal, Abimeel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. "'All these were Joktan's sons. "'Their settlements extended from Mesha to Sephar, "'the eastern hill country. "'These are Shem's sons by their clans "'according to their languages "'and their lands and their nations.'" You might have heard it suggested that Jobab from this verse is the same as Job in the, as far as the book of the Bible, Job. And the reason is because in the Septuagint, there is an extra verse at the end of the book of Job saying that his name had previously been Jobab. The problem is Even if that verse is meant to be included in the book of Job, the two Jobabs have different fathers. So I'm not sure how they make the jump to saying it's the same guy. And the Jobab from the book of Job in the Septuagint is a descendant of Esau, not a predecessor of him. But you might come across that idea if you listen to Bible studies on this section of Scripture. Verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their family records in their nations. The nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. What we're seeing here is just five generations down from Noah, but man, has there been a lot of activity and world building in a relatively short time. We see scattering and empires and nations formed. The seeds of unrest, opposition, and confusion have been planted. And we know that they would yield millennia of war and suffering and struggle. Yet all the while, God accomplishes his work through lives. And I thought this was an an interesting thing to consider for a moment, that as we move through a book like Genesis and we see all that was going on in the world and at the same time the things that God does, we notice something. While man is building empires, God is building people often just a few people at a time. He's gonna allow his plan come all the way down to one old man and his wife who can't have any kids. And he says, I'm gonna, I'll show you how to make nations. I'll show you how to bring a deliverer. And so he builds people. He does his work through your life much more than he does through towers or cities or empires. He does work through your life. While Nebuchadnezzar is busy doing all of his insanity in the city and empire of Babylon, what's God doing? He's taking four guys, Daniel and his three friends, and he says, let me show you what power is. Let me show you what love is. Let me show you how I can revolutionize a human life and a human heart. Let me show you how I can turn human history like that. In a night, we can get rid of the Babylonian empire and the Medes and Persians are coming in. Babylonians, you don't exist no more. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the worst person that's ever lived. You're the worst person on planet earth. And then one day, you're a believer in the God of heaven. Because God doesn't say, we gotta build towers. Go out and build towers. We need parapets. We need all kinds of things. Start digging stuff. He says, I want some people. Who wants to spend time with me? Who wants to commune with me and walk with me and talk with me and receive my love and love me back in return? That's how God works. He builds people. Through the regular course of your life, as you walk with him, as you have a family, as you follow after him, as you listen to his leading and obey his word, he is able to do what is impossible for men. This passage can encourage us that even if it seems like the whole world is closing in and the whole world is coming against you, you've got nation after nation closing in to destroy you, God is still able to do everything that he has promised and he will accomplish everything that he has promised. We learn from this passage, even if your family goes off in some whacked out direction, you can continue to go God's way and do what's right. You can keep following him, even if you have to follow alone. And even if you make a mistake, which we all will, like Noah and Abraham or any of the other heroes of the faith, we can get back up and be back in step with our loving Lord. He will not leave us or forsake us because when we are faithless, God remains faithful. At the macro level, most of us are probably Japhethites Japhethites, by and large. Praise God that he has grafted the Gentiles in to be part of his special people. He's always allowed that, by the way. We will see uh, throughout the Old Testament examples like Rahab and Ruth, Canaanites, deserving of death, condemned to death, and yet when they came and said, Lord have mercy, he said, absolutely, I'm ready. I'm ready to welcome you, I'm ready to embrace you, I'm ready to make you mine. We're gonna wipe out your past and you're gonna just be one of my people now. I don't care who you were before, I don't care where you're from, I don't care what you did, you're one of my people now, all you have to do is by faith believe and receive my mercy. As a Japhethite nation in which we find ourselves, one concern we should have is our national relationship to that special group of Shem's descendants, the nation of Israel. The book of Joel, a prophetic book, says that God will hold nations accountable for how they treat Israel. And so we should entreat our leaders to honor and support that special nation, not condone anything they do, not that they never make any national mistakes, but to support them, and to help them and to uh, honor them as God's special people. Finally, this text reminds us that despite all of our cultural differences, we're all brothers and sisters. There is only one race, it's the human race. Yes, there is difference in language and historical ethnicity, but those things should not divide us. Especially in the church, we're reminded that there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer barbarian or Scythian, we're all one in Jesus Christ. In 2015, as we close, a fellow by the name of A.J. Jacobs put on what is called the Global Family Reunion. He, his hope was to break the Guinness World Record set by the Porto Boilevese. The idea was that, genetically speaking, since we're all one big family, he said, anybody can show up to this family reunion, and we'll take the biggest picture in the history of the world, and we'll break the record. The event actually attracted a lot of attention. Celebrities and statesmen got involved. George H.W. Bush appeared by video. What? And companies also like 23andMe and the Federation of Genealogical Societies got on board, too. They didn't end up getting enough people. (laughs) And I'm not sure Guinness would have recognized his theory anyway. But listen, you and I are part of a continuing global family, not just of humans who are all made in the image of God and loved by God, but more importantly, we are part of the family of God. Sons and daughters brought into his household to be loved and used for his glory and then scattered out to invite others to join in till one day we are all reunited with our maker forever in that city whose builder and maker is God.